as we've noted already, and as Brother Roger so aptly mentioned in the announcements, what a joyful opportunity we have this morning to gather, to come together like this, feeling the gracious mercy and goodness of God, and to understand through the pre presentation of the Scriptures how lovely and wonderfully privileged you and I are to be members of the body, appreciative of what Christ has done for us, and to live in a way to, in fact, hear him say on that final and noble day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. As, we, as Brother Roger also noted earlier, if you haven't had the opportunity yet to pick up a puzzle out there in the foyer on, on the left as you exit, uh, feel free to do that. There are two manila folders there present. One of them has in it the first puzzle and one has the second puzzle. And I've tried to write on the outside puzzle number one or puzzle number two. So you can make certain that you select the one that, that you're looking for. And as we're trying to do that again, we'll try to have them each week as we study through the book of John. On Wednesday night, one of the statements that was made was whether or not blanks might be left in the crossword puzzles, and I chose not to do so. So there will be no more blanks in the crossword puzzle. There will be a letter in every single one of the boxes that, that, that's supposed to be there. And again, might we remember that those are drawn from the New King James Translation. In our series of studies that we began last Lord's Day morning, we had turned our attention to a rather interesting set of themes and topics having to do with the Bible's presentation of gender or matters that relate to sexual considerations. And as we began that opening lesson looking somewhat interestingly at it, we in fact noted the power of the Bible's presentation of the dignity that accords to the sexes. We learned rather interestingly that both male and female were made in the image and in the likeness of God, that each one is the recipient of various blessings from heaven itself, and that each one has been devoted or given matters concerning responsibilities and duties attached to that particular gender. And as we began that study, I hope that we each left with an appreciation that whether we be man or whether we be woman, God can use us in his kingdom. He may not use us in the same way, but there are duties, obligations, and responsibilities that attach to each of our efforts and each of our lives if we would be pleasing unto him. As we come to this second lesson in the series, we now will today turn to yet another interesting fact concerning what the Bible has to say con uh, related to this subject. It has to do with distinction. It has to do with distinguishing the genders or the sexes. And so might we proceed to study in that way today, beginning in the following way, by noting a problem. By, that is to say, by taking note of or making consideration of a problem. It is true, isn't it, that there are a number of similarities concerning the way that men and the way that women were originally fashioned. But as one considers that, it still does not lay aside the fact that they are different that males and females are different. In fact, as you take a look even physically, not all aspects of the bodies are the same, but furthermore might we notice that there are other distinctions as well. There are differences in viewpoints. That often leads to distinctions in perspective. It often leads to distinctions, in fact, in the way that things are approached and the way that decisions are therein made. It also perhaps leads to differences in mannerisms and in behaviors. In fact, is it not easy to see that we tend to appreciate those kinds of things rather differently? 
And if you were to consult or at least look through a bookstore in Cookfield or perhaps in Nashville, likely you'd find a whole host of books written by various individuals describing that very matter. That men and women are different. That their approach and their behaviors and mannerisms often are noted to be not alike. As you take a look at that somewhat differently and somewhat sadly, it is to be noted, though, that quite often our culture and our society tends to wash over those distinctions. It tends to, in fact, lessen the character of them. It hasn't really been all that long ago when I actually noted in an article that there was a rather strong and powerful statement of encouragement with respect to setting aside some of those rather basic distinctions. In fact, notice, when one considers various male behaviors. It's not unusual at this point to see males with long hair and jewelry, much like you would have expected to see a female not many years back. Furthermore, various articles encourage males to be more sensitive to your feminine side, and in fact to encourage and develop that feminine side. But males are not the only ones, for they're females. And we perhaps we can appreciate too that they often are now found to wear hairstyles and other kinds of clothing and behavior more indicative of males. But what's more, they too are able to read articles encouraging them to develop your masculine side, to gain a sense of familiarity with and in fact to encourage that development of that side of you that's male, the masculine side of yourself. As one gives some thought and reflection to comments like that, I can't help but assert, based on that and some things that we'll study shortly this morning, that that's one of the sources of the problems that we face in modern society. This dis failure to distinguish the genders and this encouragement of washing over that set of distinctions, if that trend doesn't change, it shall only worsen, that is, the society about us in the years that are to come. For as we shall shortly see, the Bible asserts and teaches a distinguishing, a distinction between the sexes. I might ask that you consider with me some opening comments as we shortly will turn to some scriptures that will challenge our thinking and perhaps encourage us to recognize that these modern things that are often taught do not find a basis in that which is of the Bible. Now, there are some similarities to be affirmed in regard to male and female. They both were made on day number six in God's creative activity. They both were made in the image and the likeness of God. And hence that means there's no insult or indignity to being either one. A male should feel proud of God's blessing upon him as such, and a female should be thankful and proud for God's blessing upon her to occupy the roles vouchsafed to her in the sacred scriptures. But what's more, to say that there are similarities is not at all to say that there are not differences. We've already mentioned them in passing, and even the Bible, on several different occasions, lifts the banner of those distinctions, not in an insulting way, but as a part of the fabric of God's designed society, what he had in mind and what he still wishes to be the case, even in this year of 2009. As you look at some of the things stated there near the bottom, let's turn our attention to some biblical texts 
found, of course, in the Holy Word of God, written by the inspired penman, given an inspiration by the Holy Spirit himself. Let's begin in the Old Testament. And first of all, look beneath the law of Moses and ask, what about distinction on that occasion? Was it acceptable in the eyes of God for men and women to act, behave, and look like each other? Or were the women to behave, act, and conduct themselves like women? And were the men to act, behave, and conduct themselves like men? I realize, of course, that if we were to begin looking in the Old Testament, we will at some point have to turn our attention to the New Testament, but might it be that some valuable principles and some valuable lessons might be discovered? Let's return to Deuteronomy 22 and read particularly verse number 5. I have taken the liberty of writing that for us so that we'll have direct recourse to it there on the wall. But in Deuteronomy 22, verse number 5, the sacred historian, Moses, had this to say. <clears throat> the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. In the heart of this section of Deuteronomy, that in fact makes very noted mention of various things distinguished in God's creation. And it covers not only the human world, but also the animal kingdom. And God time and again laid down the absolute statement that those distinctions are to be recognized. Humans are not to cloud that which God separated. Humans on that occasion, Deuteronomy 22, were not to ignore or neglect or set aside those distinctions that God had woven into the fabric of his creation. When he comes to verse number 5, again, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, God, through Moses, said, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. As we open that verse, I might suggest to you, in fact, that the Hebrew verb is a bit stronger than the way our King James translators chose to place it. And I have tried to make that note for you. The actual verb means to be or to become, not merely to wear. And hence, the woman was not to try to act and behave and look like a man. The woman was not to seek to, by her appearance, by her apparel, by the way that she wore the things that she did, she was not to give a manly appearance. What's more, she wasn't to strive to behave or act like them despite what she was wearing. There was a clear distinction that God had in mind for the ancient Hebrews. But notice furthermore to the man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Men were not to seek thus to present themselves, to conduct or behave themselves, to take the role of the woman. We can see in a text like that a rather strong sense of imperative in it because of the way the verse closes. Notice it says, All that do so are an abomination unto the Lord. There were many things beneath the law of Moses described as an abomination. In fact, some of them were punishable by death. This one happens not to have been so punished, but notice the word abomination still attaches to it. This was egregious in the sight of God. It was abhorrible in his sight. 
men and women were not to try to cloud the distinction between the sexes. The women were to be recognized as such, and the men were to be recognized as the men. Notice again the language. The woman shall not. That's as straightforwardly a command as any other commandment to be found in the holy book of God, isn't it? For that day and time shall not. But notice again the men not to in fact adorn themselves with raiment, with apparel, much like that of the women. That text alone hints at a, the desire on the part of heaven for a rather clear distinction to be seen in the presentation of the men and the women, as well as in the behavior that was to accord to each one of them. As you and I wander in our mind then down the corridors of Old Testament history, and think about some of those individuals that we would encounter later, like Joshua and Ezekiel and others. Do we find them adorning themselves and at least attiring themselves in a proper fashion and way? That commandment had been laid forth. It wasn't only for the priests. It wasn't only for those that were in the families of the priests. It was for everyone. He said, all that do so are an abomination. And so today, might we appreciate that commandments that would relate to dress or appearance of the sexes isn't just for elders or preachers or their children. It's for everybody too, at least we might so suspect. As we look perhaps at a different passage, the one that was read in our hearing just a few moments ago, doesn't that set a rather interesting tone and a rather remarkable lesson? In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, do we not again read, God is not the author of confusion? The context there was descriptive, wasn't it? Of the power and majesty of what is to be observed and seen in the behavior of the church. For after all, we can notice even in it seems all aspects of his creation, God is a supporter of orderliness, and he is in fact a demander of such. That's true in the natural world, isn't it? One can only be amazed at the regularity appearing in, say, the natural world about us. The planets move in rather regular and orderly patterns about the sun. The moon orbits about the earth in such a regular and wonderful fashion. And isn't it true that scientists have learned to describe those using mathematical specificity? That could only have been the case, given the fact there's no chaos and anarchy in it. But isn't it also that way in God's spiritual kingdom? The church is not to be that of confusion. The church is not to be that which is disorderly and unruly and described more by anarchy and chaos. Worship even is not to be conducted in a fashion like that. Any service of the saints is not to be so conducted. Anything should be desirous of bringing honor and glory and exaltation to the name of God. And since he is not an author of confusion, we should not think we can worship him in a confused and disorderly way. But as we consider that degree, that he's not the author of confusion, doesn't that seem to play a role given what we've just learned in Deuteronomy? Namely, in the creational aspect of men and women, God still is not the author of confusion. It was his desire beneath the law of Moses for there to be distinction, for them to be distinguished. And might we expect thus that a similar thing will also be true under the New Testament economy. 
In fact, as we turn our attention, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if we might. And notice some of the statements made on that occasion as Paul gave commandment relative to some things concerning men and some things concerning women. The opening 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 11 speak of and speak to various matters that were occurring in ancient Corinth. And though a full discussion of that would take a bit of time, certainly perhaps several Sundays, we are specifically interested in that which is embedded in verses 14 and 15. Might I invite your attention to those two verses, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. We recognize, I think, in our study of a passage like that one, that there are some of the features contained in it that have to do especially with the behavior of what was occurring in ancient Corinth, and furthermore, the fact of what was, in some instance, a tradition or custom associated with that city and that place. But it still is a significant principle that in answer to the problems that were occurring there, Paul appealed to what appeared to be a matter of the fabric of the creation that God had set forth. Notice that he simply said, Doth not even nature itself teach you? And the word nature has reference to the basic and intrinsic and fundamental way that things are. Isn't it thus a natural matter to appreciate the fact that a man with long hair is a shameful thing? Understanding and helping us see that as Paul wrote that in the New Testament era, that is a very sobering reflection and a passage for us even today, isn't it? Doth not even nature itself teach you one of the distinguishing characteristics seemingly that God had in mind from Eden onward was that the appearance would be distinguished in a reasonable way by the hair that's worn. But not only that, for in verse 15, as he turns his attention to the lady, to the woman, he says, but if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. The glory associated with the capability of long hair for the lady or the woman and the shamefulness associated with such for the man perhaps begs the question of what those words might signify and what they might well mean. I've taken the liberty of attempting to provide the definitions from the words used in, in the Greek text that word shameful, or shame for the man, notice that that word means dishonor, disgrace. It further means humiliation or ignominy, all of which are terribly bad things, of course. No one would desire to particularly or so describe or desire to be dishonorable or disgraceful or shameful. But notice, on the other hand, how different the word is used with respect to the lady. There, the word glory that's applied means splendor or grandeur. As a woman thus appreciates the character of her hair, and a man appreciates the character of his, it would seem that in 1 Corinthians 11, that is one of the distinguishing characteristics associated with males and with females, isn't it? And so as we consider that point, might we thus think that you and I as men when I speak to the men of the audience, 
We shouldn't desire to wear our hair sufficiently lengthy to be confusing to the ladies, to be, in fact, that which might be uh, confused in regard to what length they might wear. But by the same token, the ladies, they shouldn't desire to wear their hair in a sufficient shortness or shape to look like that it would be of the man. Now, it's long been known, of course, as we read a verse like that, God doesn't define the word long. We thus can't bind where he has not bound. We can't say that three inches is thus too long. That would just be your thought or mine. But it seems clear, doesn't it, that there is some meaning behind that word. And if there's a question, if my hair is sufficiently long, that there's a question in my mind that it's too long, then it's too long. If it's that point in time, having reached that length, I need to have it cut. It ought not be in a position and in a length to be confusing to that length that would be worn by the ladies or that would be worn by the women. And so the length of one's hair seemingly has a reasonable part to play in the distinguishing or distinction that accords to male and female. That verse alone, though, isn't the only ones that's found in the New Testament. In fact, might we consider some others as well. Also, in the Corinthian epistles, might we notice something about the behavior asserted to accord to male and female? It isn't just about the hair. As we learned earlier, there are differences in viewpoint. There are differences in that intrinsic character of females and males. Does the New Testament seem to have anything to say about that? Might we also suggest and, and introduce at this point this, too, is a rather noted problem in the modern era. Do you remember earlier the statement that I had made that many books and various so-called scholars assert that each are to, in fact, develop the sense of the other? Males, develop your feminine side. Reach out in character of the nature of that side and, in fact, upbuild it and encourage it. Also to females, we're told, develop they are. Your male side, the masculine side of you, for that will allow you to be the most successful. It will allow you to develop and become what you by right ought to be. That's what we're told. But notice again, God in the Old Testament had a very specific set of distinguishing characteristics, and they were not to be crossed. What about the New Testament? In regard to matters concerning behavior, you might make note with me of a word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 9. Let's read the entirety of that verse and then place that word into the way that Paul has employed it. In 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, Paul, the inspired apostle, had these words to say. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. A rather impressive list. But also, as we contemplate the character of those described, we nearly recoil in horror at the thought, well, there was adultery and fornication and extortioners and all kinds of behaviors then in Corinth, but that kind of behavior still happens today, doesn't it? 
The world is full of it. And yet, one of the words employed in that listing perhaps is a bit unfamiliar to us. It's that word effeminate. And might we again notice that these that are herein described are said to be those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that those guilty of these things thus stand in the presence of evil in the sense that they are sinners, and unless repentance is thus made, they will not inherit heaven as their eternal home. That's how serious all of these sins are. And yet again, one of them is effeminate. I wonder what effeminate means. I wonder what character that's describing. I've attempted to give us some information about that word. That word effeminate means having the qualities generally associated with women. That is, unmanliness. Among these characteristics and these kinds of behavior that would be such that it would not enter the glorious and wonderful portals of heaven, those that are effeminate are said to be in this list. And the effeminate, again, are those males that you can see have or desire to have those qualities that are associated with the female. Now, certainly that word can be taken a bit further in the character of its discussion because that definition came from Webster's Dictionary. What about a Bible dictionary? How would the Greek have made the presentation of that word? You'll notice the Greek word is malakos. That's the Greek word that's translated this word effeminate. And there are two different ways in which that word seems to be used in the New Testament. One of them is this. In a literal fashion, it can have reference to the following, namely that which is soft or luxurious. And Jesus, on two different occasions, used that word with respect to the kind of clothing that John the Baptist wore as if others expected it. Now, that's not to say John wore that clothing, because remember, the Lord said, What went ye out for to see? A man in soft clothing? And that word soft is malakos. John didn't wear that kind of soft, luxurious clothing. But Jesus asked, Well, what did you go out to see? Did you expect to find a man like that? They didn't. Remember, John ate locusts and wild honey and wore that leathern girdle and camel's hair. He was a rugged sort of individual who labored in uncompromising fashion in defense of the truth of God, didn't he? But notice, in addition to having a possible reference in that literal way, the word can also be used figuratively in a way that has reference to unmanliness or, again, that which is effeminate defined by Webster's Dictionary above. So it would seem that we have something on which we should ponder. Here, those that are effeminate, those that cloud that distinction between the man and the woman, those men that not only strive to look like but want to behave like the women, are doing so apart from what would be God's desire. The effeminate, you see, is not a part of God's plan. Now, gentlemen, that's not to say we can't be sensitive. That part is of our nature just as much as we would expect God to have planted it there. Jesus was sensitive toward the plight of ladies. A woman brought to him in adultery. The Lord said, go and sin no more. John 11, or John 8, verses 1 to 11. But when it comes to the basic nature of who we are, men and women, the men are not to dress and behave like the women. And the women, by the same token, 
are not to behave and dress like the men. That distinction as set forth in these Corinthians texts seems relatively clear, and it seems to be that which is beyond any doubt. As you look perhaps at that final comment, might we notice that the issue concerning the roles of sexual character also in our society have begun to be clouded. Now, perhaps I need to say no more about that. I think we all maybe know what's being said. But might we ask, what does the Bible say about it? Can the sexual roles be reversed in the sense of women taking the particular leads in a relationship that would have belonged sexually to the men, or vice versa? In First Corinthians, or rather, First Timothy, chapter one as well as also another 1 Corinthians text asserts the answer is no according to the plan and the will and the design of heaven. For example, this text in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, notice that the usage of the word effeminate and also the presentation of the word that follows, abusers of themselves with mankind, that seems to have reference to this very idea that also leads ultimately to lesbianism or homosexuality, but perhaps includes a bit more. But that First Timothy passage, would you please read that along with me as we make interesting note of what Paul said to his young son in the faith, Timothy. In verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be anything, other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The interesting point is that one of the words that's present there in the Greek that is translated in that particular phrase that defile themselves with mankind at the opening part of verse 10, that again touches on this matter of effeminacy. It touches on that blurring the distinction between the men and the women. And this time with a special emphasis on the sexual roles that would be present for each one. It is thus to be noted as we have looked at any and all of these passages from Deuteronomy 22.5 to 1 Corinthians 14.33 to 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9, 10, and 11 to 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10 all have not left the matter unaddressed. They have in fact stated the following tally. And as we draw our lesson this morning to a conclusion, might we notice in summary some of these features. To highlight again, there is no insult or indignity to being a male or to being a female. God fashioned us. We are all made in his image in exactly that way. But furthermore, we have noted that society has highlighted and desired and even encouraged the blurring of that distinction on many occasions between the male and the female. And that, quite frankly, is a problem, isn't it, in light of these passages that we have discussed this morning. And furthermore, as we look at ways in which we can safeguard ourselves and teach these things to our children, might we remember that, say, the length of one's hair is not merely just a personal choice. A boy that wants to wear long hair needs to be kindly but rather sternly reminded, son, 
you're making a reference and a choice in light of how others through the Bible would see you. It is not merely left to personal choice. You, especially as a Christian, are reflecting upon the divine revelation of the God of heaven, and he has said that it's shameful. Similarly, a girl that might wish to wear or conduct herself in a way that would be, shall we say, far less than feminine, would need to be kindly but yet firmly reminded. Again, there are larger issues at stake than personal choice. Specifically, we should not strive to be like the opposite sex in the sense of appearance or in behavior. We should respect the distinction that God has placed in the character of the human family. But what's more, that also has repercussions for the sexual roles as we've just discussed from both Timothy and Corinthians. And finally, might we notice as we strive to present these matters, it is never presented in the Bible as an insult to either of the sexes. And so we are not at that liberty either. It's just a matter of respecting and honoring the distinction that God has embedded by desire in the creation that he has fashioned. As we close in this lesson this morning, might we at least say that in the beautiful law of Christ, there is neither male nor female, meaning that men and women alike have equal access to the grace of God by faith. Our discussion today has been with respect to clothing and hairstyles and things physical in character, but in terms of what one must do to be a Christian, both have to do the same. The gospel is for all. Sometimes we sing a song, and I believe that's its title. The gospel is for all. And didn't, in fact, Jesus say in Mark 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He didn't just say men. He didn't just say women. All have that immortal spirit. All are immortal spirits and are in need of responding by faith. Today, if you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, perhaps you've never become a child of God. If so, or if that it be the case in your life, you need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You need to repent of the sins in your life, confess his matchless name as the Son of God, and be immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in accomplishing that, it would be a wonderful beginning for you. If you have done that at some point in life and have known the glory and joy of it, but maybe you have lapsed, into disgraceful behavior, maybe by way, the way you've dressed or the way you've behaved. It's time to make a change. It's time to honor who God made you to be, and it's time to allow Christ to fill your heart with all the glory of the New Testament Scriptures. If we could be of assistance in praying for your forgiveness upon your repentance and confession, we would certainly be happy to do that as well. We would ask that you let us know publicly what way we can help, and that you would do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.